so we have to remember that, that this morning we're picking up in the middle of a letter. And so Peter would have written this letter to Christians that are scattered all over modern day Turkey when they were together. They would have picked up Peter's letter and they would have read it from beginning to end. And, and they probably would have done this many times as they're just clinging to this man who they love, this leader of the early church. They would have clung to his words. And, and we don't get the benefit of doing that, right? Today we're, we're picking out a few verses in the middle of the letter. And so you have to kind of remember that as we're jumping in to, to today. Um, the, he is writing to a group of people and he himself are living under the, the, the influence of Rome. And so Rome has taken over the world, essentially. They are uh, what is dominating the whole world, not just that the Christians that he's writing to, but the world that he's also living under himself. And so the, 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 the whole thesis of the letter of 1 Peter, you could say it like this, that he is reminding people, he's reminding the Christians, this world is not your home. Your home is in heaven. Your home is with Jesus that you're made for Christ, that you're made to be in the fullness of his presence. And the place that you find yourself right now, whether it is in all these cities that they were scattered in or where we find ourselves today, living in Nashville, Tennessee, in the United States, our home, if you're a follower of Jesus, is with Christ in heaven. And you have to remember that because it sets the, the stage for everything else that he is going to say. And so last week, if you were with us, we looked at, at verse 12 and he says this beautiful statement. He says, um, make the most... Um, he, he says, make the most of the opportunities you've given. He says, live such good lives among people who don't yet love and follow and believe in Jesus that they see the life that you live. And because of your example, because of the way that you choose to live, they come to know and to believe and to follow Jesus. He says, live such good lives, Christians among people who don't yet know and love Jesus, that they look at your life and they see something so drastically different. And so this morning, everything that we're gonna be looking at, talking about government, talking about slaves, talking about husbands and wives, it is all an outworking, an overflow of verse 12. That he's gonna speak into the different spheres that we find ourselves in, that they found themselves living in, and what it looks like to live such good lives among people who don't yet know Jesus that they would see our lives, that they would come to know Jesus as king. And so we're gonna talk about some of the hard stuff today. We're gonna talk about the, what it looks like in, in the social and political world. We're gonna look at what, it ta- what he's doing with the slaves. And, and, and we have all kinds of emotions, and for good reason, as we read through that. And we're gonna talk through what it means to be husbands and wives. But, but I want us to understand what is at the heart of what Peter is really doing in this text, what he's really going after. And it's this call for Christians to be mindful of the Lord, to be mindful that in every single moment we are called to live for Jesus. That no matter what your life situation is, it's this invitation for for Christians to examine whose audience we are actually seeking and for our lives to be this offering that is pleasing to the Lord. It's this call for us as a people of God to live lives for the Lord. You know, I think about my first date with Courtney and she's a year older, she's smarter, she's more beautiful, she's just everything, right? And so I remember on my first date, like she's given me this one little window, like I've got to capitalize on it, right? And so, you know, I found out about her favorite restaurant, which is Jay Alexander's, and, or it was, it's not anymore, um, Save up, take her to her favorite restaurant. You know, I dress up, 
I put on khakis. I never wear khakis, right? Like I'm doing everything that I can. And, and the whole night is, is, is me just trying to give everything, like my absolute best according, right? There was no concern about what the, the waiter was thinking. There was, there was no concern about what my friends, I realized that I had this one shot to live to convince this woman who's way out of my league, like, hey, you're, you're giving me this window. I'm gonna do everything I can. And my whole attention, my, my whole effort, my whole night was, was revolved around, around her. I didn't care about anything else. And it's like Peter is, is, is wanting us to, to understand, like Aaron, hey, your life is about Jesus. And Austin, your life is about Jesus. And Derek, your life is about Jesus. And for us as the people of God, as Christ's followers to understand that, that he really sees us, that, that there's nothing that we're doing right now that he's not aware of. And, and he's inviting us, hey, don't be so concerned about your, your image and what everyone else is thinking. There is a God in heaven who sees you. Live your life for him. And if we miss that, we're going to miss out on all the, the beauty and maybe even some of the uncomfortable things that Peter's going to say to us this morning. Live your life for Jesus. Let's talk about the social, political side. You know, Peter's living under the Roman oppression with these people as well. And here's what is so crazy. So he, he tells them in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a, the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do good and, and to silence those who do evil. And so let me just uh, give you a little insight onto the emperor at the time, because we can read that and we're like, oh man, he's probably just this amazing humanitarian that loved Jesus and that it was easy for them to submit. Now, let me tell you about Nero the man who Peter's telling these Christians to submit to. So Nero decides that it would be a good idea to burn down the city of Rome. So he literally, can you imagine? Like the mayor of Nashville, their, their first move, I'm gonna burn down the city. Our homes, our restaurants, our coffee shops, places where you put your kids in daycare. And then to find out that the reason he decided to burn the city down was because he was interested in, in development and he wanted to build new buildings. Can you imagine how calloused, how, how hard-hearted you must be to do something like this to the people that are under you? Can you imagine as the people waking up in Rome and, and walking about the streets and going, oh my goodness, everything that we know, it's gone. Days pass and rumors start to, to flood that the Christians did this. That Nero somehow turns this on the Christians. This deplorable man. You know, reading about some of the things that he would do to Christians just for his fun, he would um, elevate Christians on streets and essentially um, use them as, as lamps so that people could see in the streets, setting them on fire, burning them alive. Could you even imagine? And what does Peter say? Submit yourself to the emperor. And we go, how could you submit to someone like that? Can you imagine getting that letter? <laughs> and we read that. What in the world? 
And I think we have to hear the, the word submit. You know, we, we read that and, and what we think that means is, hey, you must do every single thing they say. And I don't believe that's what Peter's getting after here. We see the holes in that and so did they. And so Peter isn't saying, hey, Christians, you must go along with every single thing that is passed down to you. We're gonna talk about that in just a minute. I believe what Peter is saying is as Christians, hey, don't have this renegade, this rebellious, you can't tell me what to do. I'm gonna stick it to the law. I'm gonna stick it to the man attitude towards authority. Right, because we represent Jesus. And Jesus didn't live like that. In Matthew chapter 22, it's this moment where um, Jesus gets caught up in this political conversation and, and the Romans were, were, were overtaxing, not just their people, they were uh, overtaxing, especially people that were not uh, Roman citizens. And so this man comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, um, what do you think about that tax, Jesus? Should we have to pay that tax? And in Matthew chapter 22, you know what Jesus says? Give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. Why doesn't Jesus take this opportunity to dismantle the unjust taxes? Why doesn't he speak into the, impre the oppressive nature of the Roman Empire? I don't know. But what we do see is him instructing his followers to submit to those decisions. You see, Jesus' life and his teachings, they were all about the kingdom of heaven. Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. His, his teachings were all about the principles of heaven and demonstrating the, the power and the love, the kingdom of, of heaven. His ministry, it, it, it wasn't this direct attack on the Roman Empire. He didn't use all of his, his time talking about all the things that they were doing wrong. King Jesus spent his life elevating the kingdom of heaven, giving his focus and his attention so that people could see and understand what God was doing by bringing his kingdom down. For the followers, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we submit, why? Because Jesus submitted? And we submit because whether we like it or not, whether it's fair or not, people who are not followers of Jesus, they look at our lives and they make decisions on our king, about our king, based on how we choose to live. Think about that are perfect and holy and just and righteous and loving and forgiving God. And people look at us and they make calls about who God is based upon our lives. It's like, whoa, none of us want that. <laughs> but they do. And I don't wanna get too far down into this, but, but when people who don't know Jesus, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, when they see us living peaceful lives, quiet lives, living under the laws in this country that are, are neutral, when they see us paying our taxes and, and hear this, not complaining about it, when they see us 
upholding the law. Not littering. Wearing our seatbelts, right? As small as those things may seem, that is us choosing to submit. And when we choose to, to live this way, not this renegade, stick it to the man, whatever you tell me, I'm gonna do the opposite. When we choose to live lives like this, there's nothing about our lives that is drawing negative, negative attention to our king. There is nothing being put in the hands of someone else to be used as ammunition against Jesus. So hear me, keep track of me. Don't check out yet. In their culture, it was a dictatorship. What Caesar said is what happened. We don't live in a dictatorship. We live in a democracy, which means that we've been given a voice. And as we work hard to translate this, to submit, what does it mean for us to, to live in submission in the context of our government and the authority that is over us. I think it means for us to vote. I think it means for when children are being separated from their parents at the border, for us as Christians to speak up for them. You know, if, if I go to another country and I show up at the, the, the border and, and you separate me and Courtney from our three children, you know how much fear there's gonna be in my heart? And if I go to a country and, and that happens to me, and if I go to a country and I have no voice and if I have no power, I hope that the Christians there who do have a voice would speak up on my behalf. But here's the key, we must do it in such a way that we are aware of God and aware that others who don't know God are watching us. You know, it would be a tragedy if Christians did nothing for those who can't help themselves. We must do that. That's part of who we are. That's part of what God has made us to do, to care about people. But here's where I want to caution us. Let's not lose perspective as we're trying to do good things, okay? You know, we can very easily, and track with me here, we can very easily do things because we want people to think certain things about us. In our culture, it's so easy to get on social media and to post something. And if you really pulled back our heart, I'm not judging you. I'm not making call about you. This is something that I've done. So I need you to, to not hear me saying, this is what you're doing. It's not what I'm doing at all. I want you to examine. This is between you and the Lord Jesus. To get online and to say things because we want to save face, because we want people to think certain things about us. May our hearts be the thing that we're most concerned with. May what Jesus May, what, may his opinion about us be what drives us. And Christians, okay, let's be so careful that we don't drag people's names through the mud and kick them while we're trying to do good. It is so easy to disparage those in authority. 
how much time do we spend time praying for those in authority? For every judgment, for every unjust thing that is done, man, are we just pulling out swords and fighting the same way the world? When people do things that, that are above us, that are not in line with Jesus, when it is so clear that the love of Jesus has not permeated their hearts, man, do we hit our knees? And do we say, God, fill their hearts with your love? Because no one who's filled with your love would do something like that. And instead of berating them and, and dragging them through the mud, we get on our face and we say, God, would you help their souls to come in contact with you? And it's way easier to disparage people than it is to pray for our enemies. To pray for people who, who things we don't agree with. But as Christians, we want all people to know Jesus. And if you don't want all people to know Jesus, you and I need to have a talk. I'm going to take you to coffee this week. The most corrupt and unjust. And as a people of God, we have to be the ones that are willing to believe for our country that even the worst people could come to know the love of Jesus. And if we've wiped our hands clean, if we've given up, man, who is fighting for them? I'll speak into this because I know we're all thinking it. But what about when things are passed down from the authorities that are in contradiction to following Jesus? That's a great question, Brandon. Thank you. <laughs> Submitting isn't synonymous with obeying. What I mean by that is, is that there is no one higher as Christians that we answer to than Jesus. No one. that there will be a day that you stand face to face with Jesus Christ and you give an account for your life. When you die, you will not give an account to the government. You'll not give an account to your mom and dad. You'll not give an account to your spouse. You'll stand face to face with the maker and give account for the life that you live. You don't answer to anyone higher than Jesus if you're a follower of Jesus. So that means that whenever something is, is, is issued that is in direct contradiction to Jesus and his ways, we have to submit to Jesus. We must submit to Jesus. The people of God have understood this and have done this all throughout the scriptures. You see this in the book of Daniel. Go and read Daniel chapter three today. There are these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the, and the edict that was issued in the decree, hey, is every time this music is, is blared into the city, you must bow down in your face and worship this God that has been erected in the city. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, there's no God but one. And so the, the music would play, and, and, and because the government issued it, everyone fell on their faces, but not these three guys. And they look at them and they said, they said, we want you to know that we answer to the Lord. And we will accept the punishment. We'll accept whatever consequences. But we understand that we will give an account to the Lord Jesus one day. 
We see this in Daniel chapter 6. This issue is decreed that everyone must start praying to, to, the, to the, the top person, the king. And Daniel knew in his spirit, I don't pray to anyone but the Lord. There's this issue that, that if, if anyone refused to pray to anyone other than the king, you'd be thrown into this den of lions, this pit with lions. And Daniel knew what it was going to cost him. He knew what his faith, his commitment to Jesus was going to cost him. So he submitted to Jesus. You see this in Acts chapter four, not just in the Old Testament. Peter and John are preaching the gospel and the authorities look at them and they say, you must quit preaching. And they said, with all due respect, we can't do that. So what it means as followers of Jesus, we submit, we live under, we don't stick it to the man because we're living for the Lord and because we're living, carrying his name, realizing that when people see us, they see Jesus, whether we like that or not. And when things of, that are passed down to us that are, are not in line with the ways of the world or the ways of the kingdom of heaven, we submit to the kingdom of heaven. And that means that we must endure the consequences in an honorable way. I don't know what that's going to mean. I don't know what that's going to look like for us. We submit to please him. We submit to impact others. Don't you guys wish that we were just done right there? <laughs> he goes on in verse 18. It says, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But if, how is it your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you should suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable for God before God. To this you recall because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so there's a lot that is in this. We hear the word slavery and we think about the atrociousness of what happened in our own country. And there is no way that God's hand was on that or for that. There's nothing about the way that our country handled that. that was, there's nothing good about that. So just hear me saying that right now, okay? But we, we, we read that and we think about, we, we run um, our experiences in our country and in the brokenness and the pain and all the things that have happened and we project that into the scripture, into the word slave. I'm not faulting us for it. That's just how we do things. That's what you do when you're trying to read the Bible, when you're trying to make sense of it. You read your experiences into it. But, but I wanna just caution us that, that what is happening here, this is not Peter's manifesto on slavery, Okay. This is not his thoughts on the systemic racism that has existed in our country. Now, one of the things that you would see in the biblical narrative, if you were to read it from beginning to end, is that God wants freedom for all people. And people have said, man, that, that they've used the Bible to, to enforce slavery and to say that God is for slavery. God is not for slavery. He liberated the people in Exodus. God's heart has always been for freedom for all people. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Peter or where Paul says it. He says, if you, he's speaking to slaves, if you can get your freedom, do so. He 
You see, Peter is writing to a specific people who are in a specific situation. And what he's calling them to do as slaves is to be mindful of how their daily living can be this place of identification with Jesus, this place to please Jesus. You know, some of these slaves were, were terribly mistreated, no doubt. That's why he's writing right here. But our understanding of slavery is, is not the same as happening in biblical slavery. In biblical slavery, many times people, they, they were able to, to grow up and to, to, to buy, essentially to pay off the debt, to become a free man, to become a free woman. Slaves in the biblical times were, were treated, in the first century were treated differently than the slaves that we think about in, in our own country. That many slaves had, had high-ranking positions, not just in society, but in families. But the reality is that clearly many slaves were being mistreated by their masters. And we can only assume that Peter is speaking to those who assume that they have no way out. And because we know that God wants all people to be free, we know that he's not okay with this situation. So Peter writes, to those who have no way out, and encourage them to walk through it like Jesus did. You know, Christ, when you, when you look at his life, spe specifically at his death, you know, the, 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 the moments leading up, you can go back and read this in Matthew 26, 27, and 28. Man, he was, he was mocked. The king of heaven was spit on. His clothes were torn. He was nailed to a cross. He was mocked some more, and he never retaliated. In fact, Matthew chapter 26, one of his disciples saw all these things coming. He saw the arrest happening. He saw all this was coming. And so he pulled out his sword and he takes his sword and he cuts this guy's ear off. And you know who that person was? It was Peter, the guy who's writing this. Peter reminds Christians, Christians who find themselves in slavery. Entrust yourself to God. You know, someone who would, who would treat another person like this has not been transformed by the love of Jesus. They are in need of Jesus. I don't know if this specific passage, this part speaks to you in your context. I was thinking about in what this might look like for us. You know, you find yourself at work Maybe you don't have another option right now because there are bills to be paid. And maybe you look at your life and you realize that your boss just isn't fair to you. They give you way more critiques than the other people that you work with. Your work is, is under a microscope. It seems to be that your boss is more nitpicky with your work. They, they put more work on you than they put on other people's plates. They say unkind things about you in the presence of other people. And although it's not slavery, it might be a place where you're being treated in, in, in an unjust way. And maybe the Lord's invitation is, is for you to understand that the Lord sees you. And the world tells us, hey, when, when you're being treated like this, 
gossip to all of the other coworkers and, and get on the phone and talk about how bad it is. And when you get home with your roommates, talk about how terrible of a boss you have and how terrible uh, of a day that you've had. And maybe what he's getting at is, if you find yourself in an unjust situation, and should you choose to not slander them and not act out and not blow up and not act like the world, the Lord will commend you. It doesn't mean it's fair. It doesn't mean it's right. But if it's your life right now, the Lord sees you. I remember I was in high school. And I remember one football practice my junior year. And uh, I remember, I just felt like the, that my life was, like I was always under the microscope of one of my coaches. More nitpicky, like, you know, Pete series, played football with Peter. And, and he, he, every, it's like everything that, that, that I did, it's like he would pick apart and he would say, like there was never any, like it, it was never pat on the back. It was never, hey, you did, you did great. And I remember this one time in practice and he said something to me and I just had it. And I literally just, in the, in, in the middle of practice in front of all my teammates, I just talked back to my coach. Do you remember this, Peter? Dang it. I hate that you remember that. And it was this moment where I'm going, man, I just freaking blew my witness in front of my teammates. And they might not have said it like that, but for me as a Christ follower, man, I wish I would have handled that differently. The Lord sees you. Wives and husbands, man, this is just an easy text, right? Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And so, you know, one commentator said this week, he says, the command for wives to be subject to their husbands should never be taken to imply in fear your personhood or spirituality. Or of lesser importance. For indeed, Peter affirms just the opposite. At the end of what he says here, he says, wives are joint heirs of the gracious gift of life. In their culture, the firstborn son was the heir. And I want you to see the countercultural ways of the kingdom of heaven. That it's men and, and women together as heirs. It's not one gender. It's both. Peter is talking to a husband and a wife. He's not talking uh, about um, telling all wives to submit to all husbands. <laughs> 
he uses this example. And maybe Peter and I will talk about this in heaven. He just made it hard on us, right? Like some of the language that he uses, but let's dig into it. You know, the, the, the example that he uses of Sarah, it's interesting because if you go back and you read about the story of Sarah and Abraham in the book of Genesis, you look at their relationships. Submission wasn't synonymous with never talking. And, and submission wasn't synonymous with, with never having an opinion. He's, he's not looking at wives and saying, hey, uh, wives, just like Sarah, never open your mouths. That's ridiculous. That's not what he's saying. That's not what has ever happened. No, submitting means having the heart of a servant. It means trusting him. He says, wives have a gentle and quiet spirit. And I don't know what, what you hear about that. And you're like, what does that mean? Like, I'm an assertive person. I've got a loud and beautiful voice that God gave to me. What, is he telling me that I need to be quiet? Is he telling me that I need to, to tone it down? I think it, this would be important for you to understand. That, that word gentle is used three times in the New Testament. Two times, you know who it's in reference to? Jesus. And the other time that it's used in the New Testament, it's in Matthew chapter five, Jesus' inauguration servant, where he says, for, for those who are, are, are gentle, you'll inherit the earth. And so I want you to understand this. If, if you think that, that gentle and quiet life means you have to be quiet, if you associate that with weakness, then, then you need to talk to Jesus about that. There's not a stronger being than Jesus. There's not a stronger person to live than Jesus. And he looks at us and it's this call for wives, be like Jesus. He's not telling you to, to never talk and to, to never have an opinion and to never have a voice. That is absolutely ridiculous. What he's saying is, hey, don't be a wife that is always demanding your way. At the beginning of this, he's talking about the importance of the daily life of a wife who is a believer and a husband who is not. And I read this this week, how rare that would have been. What happened in the first century is when you get married, man, you adopted the religion of your husband and you worshiped his gods. And so you think about how counter-cultural this is, how much of an amazing work of God was happening, that, that women, that these wives were coming to know Jesus. And instead of just going along with the social norms of the day, no, they were following Jesus. And he says, if, if this is you, if your husband's not a believer, let them see the purity and the reverence of your life. What he's saying is, hey, don't go along with sin. Don't submit to your husband when he tells you to do things that are contrary to the ways of God, just like we talked about in government. That is never the case. You will answer to Jesus. He says, live your life though, so that, that, that the person who is the, in the most intimate relationship with you, they get a front row seat to who Jesus is. And some of you, you really relate to this. Maybe it's your parents that, that your mom's a believer and your dad's not, or maybe it's you that you're a follower of Jesus and your spouse is not. And understand what, a, what an amazing position you've been put in. 
Incredibly difficult, I can only imagine. An amazing position to let them see who Jesus is. And their soul may be won over by the way that you are undivided, with an undivided heart, living for Jesus. That the way that you talk, the way that you serve, the way that you love, the way that you don't demand your way, the way that you just offer your life up to Jesus. Can you imagine a better situation than your spouse coming to know the Lord because of your life? The hairstyles, the stuff that he's talking about. Hey, don't wear jewelry. You know, he, he's not talking about never doing your hair and, and not having nice clothes and wearing jewelry. That's not what he's saying. You know, at, at, at first glance, you could read that and we're like, man, Peter just, he just doesn't get it. Like, he's just not down with fashion. He just doesn't understand the way things work. And, and what he's doing, he's, he's calling the, the, the wives to examine your heart and your motives. You know, why is it that you feel like you need to have all this expensive clothes? And, and what is it about your hairstyle that you're actually trying? Are you trying to, to present your life fully to the Lord? Or is there something else going on there? Are you, are you, you need to examine your own heart. Okay. For husbands, you know, I don't know if you noticed this, Peter writes six verses to, to wives and one verse to, to the husbands. What's up with that, right? Like, the husbands need more, uh, they need more instructing than the wives. I love that he says, husbands, be considerate and it's, and it's better translated, be knowledgeable. And I really love that. He says, be knowledgeable of your wife. How beautiful. Listen to her value her. Pay attention to her heart. Pay attention to her needs. You know, this is so countercultural, what Peter is saying, and we miss this. In their culture, women had no value. I read this this week that, and this isn't in the Christian term, this is just in the, the, the Roman culture that you lived in. If your wife had an affair on you, you could kill them without any public um, ramifications. What? You see what Peter does here? He reminds them that in God's eyes, a man and a woman, they both have immense value. You're both heirs. You know, he uses this word weaker. I don't know if you caught that or not. He's not talking about spiritually. He's not talking about in God's eyes. I don't fully know what he's getting at there. A lot of commentators think that he's literally just talking about physically. And we can all go, man, you know, my sister-in-law's into CrossFit. She could kick my butt anytime like that she wanted. So it's not always this consistent, like men are stronger than women or yeah, it's just not what he's doing. So I don't fully know what he's getting at, but I do know that, that, that he's wanting husbands to understand that, that as the wife submits to her husband, as the wife lifts up her husband, husbands don't use what God has given to you to also lift yourself up. And this is where this passage has, has been abused and uh, an abusive call themselves Christian husbands, people who aren't Christians, but ha have used this, man, they will point this passage out to their wives as a way to use God to control their wives and to benefit themselves. And that is not the way of Jesus. You know, when you respect someone, you listen to them. 
You see the value in them. And I love this, the end of verse seven. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. And you need to hear this, husbands. We need to, to really wrestle with this. It's a big deal. Should we choose to not be knowledgeable of our wives? The Lord will hinder our prayers. You're not listening to your wife. You're not vowing here. She, she's submitting. She's, she's listening. She's trusting. She's serving. She's loving. And, and you are all about you. You're tuning out your wife. You're not in turn to her needs. The Lord mutes you. The Lord doesn't say that to the wives. He says it to the husbands. And there's this very just tension that, that exists, that, that the way you treat your wife, the Lord sees it. And should you choose to mistreat one of his daughters, you choose to mistreat one of my daughters, I'm coming after you. And the Lord is very serious about this. The way that we interact. So what do we do with all this? First thing that we do. For those of us who are Christians, to evaluate who it is that we're living for. Are we consciously thinking about the Lord, trying to please the Lord in all things? Are our hearts pure? Are we doing things the right way with the right motives? I want to invite you to examine that this morning. So many times I've done the opposite. I've done the right things for the wrong motives. I've done things to be seen by people, not because my heart was in it. And, and it's a big deal. And this, riot, this morning, I want to invite you, if, if this is you, if you've, if you've failed to confess that, to bring that to the Lord, this is 1 John chapter 1. If you are, can, are willing to confess your sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive you of your sins. He will cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. If you failed, if your heart has gotten off, if you've been going, man, I've just missed it in, in, in this. Man, come back to the Lord. He says that you've returned to the shepherd of your soul. You know what a shepherd does? A shepherd just instructs. And so what you're, just, what you're saying is, Lord, I wanna come back to you. I wanna live under your lordship and I, I haven't done this right. And he knows that. He says that, that Christ took all of our sins on his body and he died. He forgave us so that you and I, he knew that we would keep something. He knew we would keep following. And for us to understand, hey, you don't run from Jesus and you don't live in denial, you come to him and you say, Lord, I've done this and I'm sorry and help me change. So we're going to take communion in just a minute. And I want to invite you to examine, do this the rest of the week. Maybe you need some more time to process. But the second thing I want to invite you to do is, are there spheres in your life where you need the help of the Lord to help you live like Jesus, to live for Jesus? Maybe you look at your, your work life or your, your home life or around your friends and you're going, man, I, I just need the Lord's help. And I wanna invite you during communion as we take a piece of bread and eat, drink a cup of juice to share that and to pray for each other and to trust that as we pray, the Lord hears us, the Lord strengthens us. I talked a long time today 
Thank you guys for listening. This is some heavy stuff and it's important and I appreciate the seriousness with, with which we get to take this. And I'm, I'm being dead serious. If, if there's something about today that, that rubbed your mind, let's talk about it. That's what family does. I might not have an answer, but I would love to sit down and listen to you and to hear we're family. That's what family does. And so I'm gonna pray for us. And when I get done praying, we'll go and take communion. You can scatter around the room. If you need prayer, there'll be some men and women at the back that respond, man, we'd love to pray with you. And so God, thank you. Um, thank you for letting me be done with this teaching. And uh, thank you for the way that you walked with us through it. And Lord, I do pray that um, if there are things that are just off still in my theology, um, that you would just uh, allow my sisters and brothers to help me and to, to shape and to correct me. And Lord, the things that were spoken that were from your heart that convicted us, um, God, let those things just bear fruit. Thank you for these, um, these men and these women, these children that have gathered here today. And, and I just pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us, that you would make us like you, Jesus, that you would help us to, to honor you and love you with all that we have. And God, keep us um, together. Keep us um, as, as your children. Help us to, to love each other and to, to lay down our life for those that don't yet know you. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.